You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to be with you here today and with a very um, highly esteemed panel to discuss digital youth peace building and why it matters. This is part of uh, the ODI at 60 series on youth peace um, Within this series, we've got two objectives. The first objective is to try to understand how young people are using digital spaces in order to practice political and civic participation. And to ask questions about, is it really working? What are the op opportunities and challenges that that kind of participation presents? The other objective is to bring two seemingly divergent and often opposing voices on digital uh, peace building together to bring uh, security actors and peace actors together in a conversation about digital uh, peace building and why and how it works. So after this very brief introduction about the series, I pass on to our executive director, um, Sara Pontigliano, to introduce um, ODI 60, um, how we're celebrating our 60th birthday and why it's important to hold those conversations on youth, peace and security. Over to you, Sara. Thank you very much, Shireen, and good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sara Pantriano, I'm the Chief Executive at ODI, and I'm really delighted that we are convening these conversations today on youth and peace building, on digital youth peace building. This is a topic that is really dear to my heart. I've been worked on peace building throughout my career from, you know, when I was working in Sudan on the peace process to today serving on the UN Secretary General's um, um, Peace Building Fund Advisory Group. Um, but the, as Shane was saying, this is also a very important year for ODI. It's our 60th anniversary, and we've been reflecting really on 60 years of undertaking research and providing advice to, you know, try and address some of the, the, the most difficult um, global challenges. So back in July, we asked a number of world leaders to reflect with us um, on how we can shape a fairer, more sustainable, uh, more peaceful uh, future post-pandemic. And the role of technology and the importance of youth in shaping a more peaceful future really stood out strongly. Um, that gave us the idea of really starting to, you know, convene some conversations on, you know, digital youth peace building. And that's because a lot of the youth peace and security agenda has traditionally been associated with, you know, securitization of youth, you know, at the expenses of, I would say, a global commitment to youth empowerment as agents of positive change and agents of peace. And so this event is really going to be the first of a series of engagements where at ODI, you know, we want to explore how young people are using digital spaces to practice political and civic participation and to foster peace building. If you think about it, you know, two thirds of global internet users are under the age of 35 and a half are under the age of 25. Um, youth also represent the largest demographic um, online globally. And that's actually particularly true in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, where you know, connectivity to the internet is rising rapidly. 
we also see youth, you know, using the internet in, in creative, but also sometimes contradictory and unpredictable ways um, that, you know, really range from shaping discourses of peace to amplifying fake news and divisive messages. But we know that there are hundreds of online peace building initiatives with millions of active users in challenging contexts that are thriving. You know, they go from crisis mapping, crowdsourcing platforms, peace gaming, blogs, podcasts, WhatsApp groups, you know, online petitions, tech first responder programs, GIS based security applications, you name it. There is a flurry out there and we need to understand this space better. So the overall objective of this event and, you know, others that will follow is really to understand how digital technology can help foster peace and how digital spaces can be used to advance youth-led peace-building initiatives. So I'm excited um, that we have such a great lineup to help us explore these issues. Um, so I will hand back over to my fantastic colleague, Shireen, who will be moderating the discussion today. Let me also introduce Shireen, though, because Shireen is an expert, one of our top experts at ODI on humanitarian politics, conflict um, and security in the Middle East and in Africa, you know, with more than 15 years experience um, on research and policy. At ODI, she co-leads um, our cross-institutional initiatives on the Mediterranean ODI Med. Shireen, over to you. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you very much for the introduction. Um, first of all, let, let us also use digital spaces to broaden the conversation that we're having today. Um, so let me uh, mention that the uh, our Twitter hashtags are hashtag ODI60, um, hashtag digital youth, and hashtag global reset. Um, so please, for all participants and everybody that's tuning in to listen to this conversation, please do tweet and um, help us broaden this conversation um, even beyond the, uh, this webinar. Uh, so let me first introduce the, the focus of, of this webinar and why we are interested in posing um, uh, this question of why uh, digital youth peace building matters. As someone who's had the first-hand experience of witnessing the Arab uprisings from 2011 onwards in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, I, I saw firsthand the, uh, the amazing capacity uh, that digital platforms can provide in terms, especially for young people, in terms of allowing them to, to network and connect with one another and to practice um, various forms of political and civic participation that otherwise would not have been uh, possible within, uh, within the public space. And I did uh, write about the, the lead up period to the Arab uprisings where we already witnessed um, the beginnings of digital engagement and, and various forms of uh, uh, political engagement online. But the, uh, the use of digital spaces uh, for peace building um, is, is very much uh, uh, a matter of, is, very con is a contentious issue. There are divided opinions on whether it actually works. Um, there are divided opinions on uh, the safety and security of using those digital spaces in, in productive and efficient ways to promote peace and to promote uh, social cohesion and solidarity among uh, people. 
there are a number of advantages to using digital spaces that include um, uh, allowing and, and creating new opportunities for young people to uh, to meet and, uh, and, and discuss civic and uh, political issues uh, online, especially now in light of the pandemic and with social distancing measures, a number of young people are adapting uh, their peace building uh, engagement and their peace building uh, skills um, to the other online world. Nevertheless, there are a number of uh, disadvantages or a number of challenges that have emerged that include disinformation and misinformation online, uh, that include questions about data security, and uh, we've already witnessed a number of examples um, where uh, information is getting politically um, used and, and monopolized uh, online by various political groups. Yemen is, is a particular instance, and we will be hearing firsthand from um, our Yemeni speaker um, about this. And so I go back to the initial question, which is, why does it matter and, and how does it matter? And, and could it be that at one end of the spectrum, digital platforms or digital spaces are, um, are, are causing more harm than good? At the other end of the spectrum, it could be an opportunity for us to reimagine what peace building could look like, because within the digital space, it is a, it's an opportunity for both top-down and bottom-up approaches to, to peace building um, uh, to materialize. And so on those issues, I invite um, uh, uh, the speakers and allow me to introduce them um, very quickly. Uh, our first speaker is, is Helena uh, Larawri, and I hope I'm pronouncing it um, properly. And she's co-founded co Build Up, which is a nonprofit that aims to transform conflict in the digital age. And when I read about the mission statement, I, I actually found it quite um, heartening and, and, and very, you know, very positive. It's about transforming conflict. It's not just about addressing uh, the causes of conflict alone, but really about transforming it in the digital age. And it combines peace building, um, uh, technology and participation. So, um, and then we will be followed by uh, Ibrahim Jalal, who is a, uh, an expert on, on security and defense in, in Yemen. He's a non-resident uh, scholar for the Gulf and Yemen program at the Middle East Institute. He has examined uh, the UN-led peace process in Yemen. He's written prolifically on uh, the situation, uh, uh, the political and economic um, and social uh, consequences of, of the conflict uh, in Yemen, and is also uh, interested in, in the broader geopolitical dynamics um, of that conflict. And then finally, we will hear from a lawyer and activist and somebody who's won a number of awards. So when I read her, uh, you should look at her bio. It really is quite an impressive list of, of awards. I'm really humbled to um, uh, introduce Nandini Lohman, um, uh, who is um, a lawyer and an activist from Global Peace Chain. And she is currently looking into tapping into the potential of technological development to promote peace, justice, inclusivity and tolerance um, in line with the goals of the global peace chain. 
Um, so I will give the floor now to um, our speakers um, in, in that order. And then there will be um, uh, a discussion between myself. I've got a list of questions I'd love to engage uh, the panelists uh, uh, in. And then following that, we'll open the floor to Q&A from uh, the participants. So over to you, Helena. Thank you, Shireen, and, and thank you, Sarah and Shireen, for setting the scene um, so comprehensively about why this topic um, matters, um, and matters particularly right now. Um, so uh, Shireen mentioned briefly what the goal of uh, or the mission of Build Up is uh, to transform conflict in the digital age. Um, and within that, one of, the, uh, one of the biggest program areas that we have is a program area that we call the Peace Innovators. Um, where we work with peace builders around the world, uh, many of whom are youth, uh, although we don't exclusively work with youth. Um, and we look at uh, the programming that they're already doing within a peace process. Uh, largely, these are track three initiatives, so community initiatives uh, to foster dialogue, although there's also been some, some work in track two and track one. Um, and we look at how digital technology can be integrated into uh, these peace processes in order to increase the impact um, of that work. And, and I share that because one of the first things that I want to talk about is what we've learned uh, from accompanying uh, tens of different peace innovation uh, processes that have integrated digital technology into a peace process over the years. Um, we've worked in Syria and Yemen. I'm really interested to hear what Ibrahim will share about that. Um, we've worked in Colombia and Burundi, um, Myanmar, a few other places. Um, and one of the things that we've seen uh, is that uh, there are essentially three functions that digital technology can play uh, within a peace building process. Um, one of the functions relates to data management, and this is that it provides tools that can help peace builders to gather, analyze, and visualize data differently in a way that shifts uh, the, the, the power or the narrative within a peace process. So for example, in Burundi, uh, we work to support a local civil society organization um, that uh, ran um, a, a consultation with, uh, with youth on what they thought the future of Burundi should be. Uh, this was SINAP, uh, which is a local organization. And um, what they then did is instead of uh, taking that data and writing a report internally, they uh, produced uh, with our support a, a digital dashboard of that data. And they used that dashboard um, to have conversations in between policymakers and youth in order to come to the conclusions of that analysis. Uh, so it was essentially a dialogue tool um, that, uh, that supported greater participation in that process. The second function that technology can play is uh, strategic communications. Um, and this is essentially providing uh, new and different ways for voice narrative change and information sharing. Um, so again, loads of examples here, but one that comes to mind is we're currently working um, with two young Yemenis, uh, both of whom are in the diaspora, uh, to uh, help them to, to produce a series of podcasts that essentially try to shift the narrative of the diaspora um, about uh, the conflict in, in Yemen. And then the third function that, that we see used a lot um, is essentially networking and dialogue functions. Um, and this is about creating new or different spaces uh, for people to talk, to connect, and to collaborate around issues of peace and conflict. Um, one uh, that, that, to give you one example, um, right now uh, BuildUp is running a big program in the United States um, uh, that essentially is an intervention on social media to try and create different spaces for conversation on Facebook and on Twitter. It's called the Commons if you want to, to look up more of it. But what it essentially does is it tries to identify topics or people that are becoming polarizing and it inv invites a different kind of conversation uh, on the social media platform itself. 
So I think, you know, with these three functions, what we've seen is that digital technology can matters uh, for peace building because it can really increase the impact of the work that we're doing. And we've asked ourselves internally, so why is that? Why is it increasing the impact? And I think in order to answer that, we've also asked ourselves, how do we build peace? What are we talking about when we talk about building peace? Um, and, you know, everyone on, on this panel and probably everyone listening knows that it's not just about arriving at a peace agreement, right? That's just the beginning um, of what peace building really is about. Um, and when I try to think about what I mean by building peace, um, I, I like to think back to, um, so I'm, I'm from Spain. Um, and in Spain, when Franco celebrated uh, 20 years, 25 years in power, um, he, Franco was the dictator in Spain, he celebrated with the slogan uh, that was called 25 years of peace. Um, and the counter slogan from activists was, we don't want the peace of the graveyards. Um, and I really like that slogan, this idea of the peace of the graveyards, because essentially what the activists were saying is this is not peace. This is a dictatorship. It cannot be peace. And what it was reminding us is that peace is not the absence of violence or the absence of violent conflict. Um, it's much more than that. Um, it's a society where it is possibly possible to have a collective imagining and reimagining of how we live together. And to do that, we have to have opportunities and create opportunities for connection, for inclusion, and for collaboration. And those are the three things that I really think uh, digital technology is helping uh, many peace builders and many youth peace builders do around the world. Um, it's helping us to connect and collaborate when face-to-face -face, uh, contact is not possible. Um, so I'm thinking uh, recently, for example, uh, we supported the peace building fund in Somalia to conduct um, a um, uh, a virtual consultation on what the priorities for peace building should be in Somalia. Um, and the reason that we ended up uh, providing that support to the peace building fund is that because of COVID, it was very difficult to run actual physical dialogues. Um, and so we created a space where that could be done virtually. It also can create alternative spaces to connect. So even where it is possible to meet um, physically, uh, sometimes virtual spaces can, can be safer or more inviting to certain groups. So I'm thinking of the work, for example, of Games for Peace, which is an organization uh, that has worked for a number of years um, with uh, Israeli and Palestinian youth to use uh, games, different kinds of games, uh, as a space for connection. They especially use Minecraft as a place for young people to meet uh, and build worlds together and through that have a conversation in a space that feels a lot safer. And I'm thinking also about the third possibility for um, new possibilities for collaboration that overcome barriers through the use of technology. Uh, so for example, in Sudan, there's a local organization called Sudia um, that has done a lot of work um, with nomads to set up a community communication system um, that uses a combination of text messaging um, and uh, in-person meetings to essentially uh, communicate about the peace agreements that are being held along the nomadic routes. Um, so these are all ways that digital technology can help to, to, uh, to really support peace building. Uh, there are the opportunities afforded by technology. But you know, as Shireen mentioned, we also know that technology can divide, exclude, and polarize, uh, that there's a number of challenges in the uses of digital technology. Um, you know, when it comes to exclusion, there's the, a whole issue about the digital divide that I'm not gonna touch on because that's not my area of expertise. But what I wanted to, to just mention um, as a particular challenge um, is the issue of division and, and polarization. You know, we could always have a whole webinar about this, and I hope there will be an opportunity to talk about this a little bit more. But I think it's so relevant to the issue of youth dig digital peace building that I wanted to touch on it briefly. Um, in a nutshell, I think um, 
it's it's fairly clear to anyone who's working with digital technology or really anyone who's watching society that digital technology is really changing us in ways that are critical to understanding how we engage with conflict. Um, and I think, you know, first, there's sort of different stages to that, but to unpack it a little bit, first, this is happening because digital technologies are gathering masses of data about us, about what we do, what we prefer, where we go. Um, and digital technologies are then using um, uh, automated or semi-automated rules, so algorithms, to make a series of decisions for us. And then to maximize engagement, many digital technology platforms target us with certain information or narratives that are more that we are most likely to agree with. They expose us only to certain people or experiences. And this creates different realities depending on who we are. And then because more extreme, violent, or polarizing content tends to drive more engagement, algorithms amplify divisive content more over more neutral content. So already we're all living in an online world that is prone to polar polarization. But what's more, anyone wishing to spread di division has a new set of highly effective tools at their disposal. Tools that can spread misinformation and hate speech more effectively, um, that, uh, targeting it to people who, uh, who can then be recruited into violence. Tools that can manufacture consensus, making it seem like lots of people are saying something when it's only a few which makes it easier to polarize a conversation and harder to find common ground. So when you bring all of this together, um, we're also seeing that digital technologies are changing our incentives, affecting how we construct our discourse, and ultimately altering how we build our identities. This all affects, all affects how conflict happens. And I think it's a challenge that is critical to this conversation on digital peace building and youth. In some ways, this challenge also offers an opportunity, right? Because we need to think of digital technologies as a space for peace building action. There's a need for conflict prevention and transformation in the digital space. And we're, we're already seeing some of this happen. Some of the examples I gave before um, speak to that, uh, to this already happening. Um, but I think we're going to see, need to see a lot more of it. And I hope that this webinar series um, helps us to think that through. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Helena. I think you made some really important um, points. For one point that really, you know, stuck with me was the the piece of the graveyards, um, and I think and I think it's a question that is still very pertinent pertinent today. Who's peace? You know, when you look at the situation, number of countries and conflict affected countries around the world, and the talk about brokering and peace negotiations in situations where a number of key actors and key stakeholders are, are left out completely from, from those conversations, you start wondering, you know, whose piece are, are we talking about? And, and is it really, you know, the, the piece of, uh, for the, of the graveyards or is it the piece for, for the people? And then the other point that I thought was, was also really important is the need to make a departure from looking at digital spaces as a vehicle and a channel for peace building to actually looking at it as a space where things happen, you know, where conflict dynamics unfold, where incentives change, where people's thinking about peace building can, can be completely um, altered. So, so, yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for your presentation. 
And now I pass on to Ibrahim, who's who's going to give us a a perspective on um, digital youth peace building, particularly in uh, with a focus on the situation in Yemen. I mean, again, whose peace um, are we talking about here, and and how does digital peace building manifest itself, if at all, um, within the context of, of the Yemen conflict? Over to you, Ibrahim. Uh, first of all, many thanks for extending an invite and uh, happy second decade anniversary to ODI and to many decades ahead. Uh, to begin from where Helena pointed, and I think she made fantastic points about whose kind of peace, uh, and that goes to digital, you know, uh, digital peace building and, and the ways youth have been involved. And, and this topic in particular, it reminds me of one one piece was written by uh, Muhammad Ali Houthi, who was uh, a senior leader in the Houthi uh, armed movement. In, in in his op-ed on the Washington Post, he he just made a simple line: "We want our kind of peace." And to that definition, when we go, whose kind of peace? It is it the peace of the graveyard that actually takes us to the conflict, or other imaginations on 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 the kind of peace? that works for the young people who make up about 60% of Yemen's population and those who will be in charge in the future, uh, the kind of peace that works for armed groups, that works for the uh, marginalized and, and the rest. Uh, you know, while peace, while digital media has, has presented opportunities for the youth, it, it certainly has presented a wide range of challenges. But to begin with, with the optimistic side of it, uh, it's important to realize that it has empowered uh, the powerless. So to imagine, for example, young people in the past, a decade ago, around the Arab Spring uprising, it's, it would be hard for people to voice out to the level uh, of access that they have and the level of reach. Uh, so when, when, when I ever think of this, I think about Twitter. So in, in, it allows you to mobilize forces and mobilization of forces uh, can go either way. It can go the way you want it, or it could go the other way around. And, and this is the paradox of local uh, international peace building paradox. Do we do it our way or do one size fits all? And, and, and that is quite problematic. I'll go into it. But, but another important benefit is that it pushes policymakers to think the hard way, put on bottom up and not up bottom. And the level of pressure that comes from digital spaces, whether through Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and, and other highly used uh, social media platforms is creating an opportunity for for young people to voice out their concerns. Uh, and, and there have been multiple uh, campaigns. One of them was, uh, for instance, in, in the humanitarian landscape in Yemen. Uh, about one year and a half ago, there was Where is the Money campaign? And it was a youth-led campaign by Yemeni people uh, overseas and inside the country questioning whether the you know humanitarian aid uh, was dispersed in accountable and transparent manner but the success of of this campaign has has been quite limited and that goes to the responsiveness of of of, of targeted communities when you use digital media platforms so through creation of videos awareness campaigns using that one hashtag and then you know you, you just create the message amplify it and and mobilize people around it 
So you have access, you can generate and share information, visualize it. I think all of these are important benefits that the digital media present us today. Not to mention that for you know young men and women inside Yemen or even outside, it's now easier for them to access foreign missions, foreign ambassadors actively engaged on on, on peace building in Yemen and, and the empowerment of Yemeni youth and deepening their civic engagement. Uh, but this all has limits. And I think this is the important aspect that I want to touch upon today. Like what kind of challenges do we have? Uh, what are the limits of, of, of digital peace building in, in the Yemeni context where, where you have, uh, you know, 3G internet uh, uh, and, and, and about, you know, 60% of population have mobile connections, but only 2.5 million are social media users. So we have, you know, the first issue we have is access issue. Uh, you know, when, when you have the access issue, then you talk about the horizontal inequalities that have been nurtured throughout the course of conflict and have been deepening uh, so far. So, you know, throughout the, 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 the unfolding years. So you have, in I think there's a problem and with the connection. Messages. Okay, well, you're back. Okay. Thanks, Ibrahim. Okay. You were silent for like uh, a minute, what? so if you can repeat it, please. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, Thank you. Didn't know. So, so the so I was I was pointing uh, that you know you have a gap between the work that you do in the digital on the digital space and then the work that you do on the ground. So peace building is not about the creation of, of, you know, fantastic messages that you amplify, tweet, like, and retweet. It's about how you bridge the gap between the work that you do at, at a grassroots level, at uh, an institutional level. And by institutional, I mean by having a consultative body to the office of the special envoy for Yemen, Martin Griffiths, and that's not until now. We keep talking about 2250 resolution and you know the other resolutions but what are the mechanisms that we have at play to to take one step forward are we you know enabling you to have discussions among each other are we facilitating dialogue between them are we organizing hackathons and 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 some sort of competitions to 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 reimagine the peace process for a young uh, perspective whether it's on issues of long term reconciliation healing, uh, whether it's also about negotiations, who should be involved, who are the actors that are marginalized, what tools can be used to capitalize on, on this uh, social capital that are present overseas uh, and in the country. And, and when you have, you know, in fragile and conflict affected states, you have high cost of internet. And, and when you compare the cost of internet in Yemen to, let's say, India, it's hugely insane and at a cheaper quality or a more, uh, a lower quality. So in Yemen, we are still using, for example, 3G internet and about 2.5 million are social media users out of 17 million people who are connected to mobile connections. Uh, so you think about the first question, who are the consumers? Who are we making our messages to through the social media? And when you look at the top, you know, searchable words, uh, you wouldn't find the word peace. You would find war. 
you would find uh, other nonsense or ridiculous issues of concern. So how are we strategizing the engagement of youth? Uh, and then comes the issue of, of security uh, for young people like me who live overseas and would love to you know, share the viewpoints on the flaws of, of, of the peace process that is led by the United Nations and geopolitical aspects. I think this comes with price because many of the opinions voiced out are, are surveilled and monitored and then filtered. So our likes, retweets, uh, shares, subscribes become archives of us. And that puts us at times under tracing and tracking and in small boxes that really filter you from the rest. And, and at times it, it complicates the prospects of your engagement uh, because you're perceived as troublemaker. And, and that's quite ironic for, for a critical engagement uh, of youth in these processes. And uh, I think the important point that comes with this is how can we bridge the gap between local priorities and the external pushes to, to you know, move the peace process forward regardless of costs. We've seen in the past uh, the interests, the motives and objectives of actors, whether the international organizations or major powers or regional actors. But what are our priorities as, as youth? I think in, in the Yemeni context, it has not worked for us in the way we want, because first of all, we need to learn from women across the world, including Yemeni women who managed to develop a movement, network effectively through capitalizing on social media and, and starting a dialogue among themselves. And, and that is quite missing in the Yemeni context. We've seen a couple of uh, initiatives coming to the fore and then disappearing. And if there is anything I would pinpoint, it is the priorities of conflict-affected youth. So uh, people overseas at times are you know, busy with managing their lives, securing uh, their immediate priorities. I wouldn't take it longer than this, but I think these are some of the issues that come to my mind. Uh, while there are benefits, there are absolutely tough challenges in terms of access, in terms of uh, uh, bridging the, the gap and, and minimizing the level of romanticization with terms like local ownership, localizing conflict resolution efforts. But when it comes to the table, I think a lot of things are missing. Uh, so with this, I'll, I'll give my uh, time back to, to Shiri. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ibrahim, for an excellent presentation. And I think, again, you pointed the number of um, issues that there are there are benefits to having um, access to uh, digital peace building. Um, it's 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 amplified bottom up approaches, which peace builders have been struggling and pushing for for a very long time. Um, it has allowed it has empowered the the powerless, as you, you yourself mentioned. Uh, but that it comes also with with a heavy cost, especially for the young peace builders themselves, be it in the diaspora or um, in the conflict affected country. And and I really loved that your um, the, the way you described it that you know your Twitter account becomes an archive of who you are. You know it can be very reductive in certain ways that um, just by one tweet or one message your entire um, uh, capacity to return home and see your family is, is out of the window, you know? 
So it's, uh, it, it, I think this is an important point that needs to be amplified further, which is the cost of, of using um, uh, those digital platforms and what it means in both the short and the long term. But it, we've also pointed um, at gaps um, uh, related to impact, the, the gap between creating momentum online and actually being able to influence uh, policymakers. And I think this has been uh, particularly sobering in the context of Yemen, where there's a lot of activity taking place on Twitter and a lot of the analysis that policymakers and international organizations are looking for is actually there. You know, it's just in one sentence, it's, it's there. But unfortunately, it, it seems that, as you yourself said, there's a massive uh, a gap between what happens within the, the online world and the, and, and the policy uh, making world yeah. and, and bridging that gap is something, is a puzzle that we need to address. Ibrahim, can, can, do you want to say something very quick? Yes. I yeah, just okay, want to add an ahead. anecdote very, very fast. So there was one panel where a foreign ambassador was engaged to talk about youth and how they could be engaged in the peace process. And one of them asked him about how can we be engaged? And to my fascination, he was like, just join and express your views. We want peace in Yemen. And that goes back to the very question that Helena pointed the piece of graveyard, whose kind of piece. So it's not only about t tweeting things. Thank you. Thanks, Ibrahim. It's, um, it's an important point. And, and thank you for sharing that example. So Tanya, um, if you're able to share with us your, um, your experience and um, whether you think digital uh, peace building for young people actually actually works and actually matters um, based on the activities that you've been engaging with directly as well as through your organization. So, so over to you. Thank you, Shireen. As a mediator, I have had to work with no digital or electronic device or communication many times as conflict actors insist on my being completely non-digital and non-electronic before they agree to meet. In most conflicts, I have no device. I have seen many cases where mediators are monitored, recorded, and conflict actors are arrested or killed after meeting a mediator who carried a digital device. Many of the tensions we have seen derive from either a lack of information or misinformation, which inflames hostilities between communities. Mediators need to design a communication strategy to help inform civil society and other stakeholders about development or delays in the peace process to manage expectations in terms of both what and the speed at which the process can deliver. In difficult processes, digital technologies have sometimes made mediation work harder. Mainly due to security concerns, hostile governments and groups can easily track, intervene, monitor digital devices and communications. As a result, many conflict actors fear any digital device or communication. That being said, there are definitely advantages of digital peace building compared to more traditional forms of peace building, such as mediation. Digital technologies increasingly influence how conflict analysis is conducted. The volume, variety, and velocity with which new digital tools can be programmed to gather information, as well as the generally low-cost access to open source data in different languages, provide mediators and their teams with real-time information. Some of the tools can provide different search options, for instance, by date, theme, event, or actor, 
Some are used for predictive analysis. Others involve different actors in the process of data collection, so-called participatory analysis, to better understand the perspectives of conflict stakeholders and ensure their views can are integrated in the analysis. With the right tools, resources, and expertise, data derived from digital sources can be triangulated with other sources of information to reach a more informed understanding of the situation on the ground and events as they emerge, the structural and historical or gender controls of a conflict, the dynamics of negotiations and of progress made to reach objectives. I would like to cite the example of Uganda and Somalia where Global Persons Catalogue Tool has really facilitated the mediation process. Social media and radio talk show monitoring can provide valuable information to mediators in contexts where access is difficult and the information landscape fragmented. When mined carefully, these two data sources can provide insights into people's lives, priorities, and sentiments. In specific contexts where internet penetration is low, the combination of radio and social media is particularly valuable as radio shows can give access to the voices of local populations who do not have internet access, while social media feeds can provide insights into the views of diasporas and official actors, such as governments, NGOs, or the media. So the UN Global Post is developing a tool called Catalog to extract, analyze, and visualize data from these sources. It uses speech recognition technology developed through its Perth lab, and that listens to public radio broadcasts and automates the detection of words spoken during talk shows. So this tool also pulls in public Facebook posts as well as Twitter streams. Building on one of several partnerships established by the UN with private sector data providers and software companies for the UN system. The name catalog describes the main analytic pipeline and the tool currently allows analysts to extract useful information from the large amounts of data collected from social media and radio feeds and analyze it for topics of interest using a combination of optimized manual annotation techniques and automatic helpers that include translation, geolocation, and machine learning driven text location. So as you can see, mediators and their teams provide an important buffer for conflict parties instilling confidence in the process and maintaining the focus on prospects for a peaceful resolution. In addition to a keen capacity to listen, this requires knowing how to communicate, engaging conflict parties to promote exchanges and solve problems, raise awareness and capacity, engage other relevant stakeholders from across society and with national, regional and international constituencies for peace. The tools Currently used by mediators when engaging with conflict parties include email, encrypted email clients, social media platforms, and online chat rooms. Instead, messaging applications and VOIP or video conferencing services allow for constant and almost instantaneous engagement. In some instances, they have significantly decreased the financial costs related to organizing meetings or discussions with conflict parties. This is particularly the case in highly complex processes involving numerous actors. The fact that many of the data analysis tools are privately owned, however, poses challenges, 
such as the sustainable use of the resource, as well as the secure management and storage of the information collected. So these are these are one. This is one of the many challenges to digital peace building that I have faced in my practice. The tools or algorithms used may produce biased results, reinforcing existing discrimination and exclusionary patterns, or producing new ones. There is concern that over-reliance on, on the technologies may also lead to a false sense of informed decision-making, particularly when the information is not corroborated with a presence and information gathering on the ground. As with all dual-use technologies, the same digital tools that a mediator team uses to conduct analysis can be just as easily used by spoilers to disrupt or undermine the reliability of and trust in information, and potentially the broader mediation process. Some organizations may need to determine whether they develop their own open and trusted internal systems to gather information and perform the required analysis to assist mediation processes and broader peacemaking efforts. Using tools such as social media platforms or instant messaging applications to communicate with parties to a, pro to a conflict can be problematic. For some informal communications, including unmanaged online or in-app exchanges, can have the reverse effect and reduce trust. The technologies can decrease the careful composition of messages, affecting the way content is interpreted. Bypassing certain actors to directly communicate with others risks antagonizing the former and distorting the process. Furthermore, dialogue via social media platforms or similar tools does not offer the same quality of personal interaction as physical meetings, and in the worst cases can lead to exclusion, harassment, or violence particularly against women and minorities. It can also create more distance between parties as it is more difficult to read body language and often more difficult to trust the purported identity of the online interlocutors with whom they are engaging. Mediators and their teams nonetheless face many challenges in implementing an effective public communication strategy in the digital era. For instance, in my practice, I have had to weigh the pros and cons of communicating via broader institutional media, for instance, the UN mission in X, X being the location, or a more personalized institutional account. Personalized accounts allow for more direct interactions, but also run the risk of attracting vicious and personal attacks. Confidentiality and discretion are key features of mediation processes. They allow mediators to establish a trusted space for parties to exchange their views freely and in confidence. While virtual negotiating rooms might work, might work well for dealing with specific issues or working jointly on texts, information confidentiality and integrity can present serious challenges. It is unlikely that digital systems and devices will ever be 100% secure. At the same time, avoiding digital technologies altogether is becoming increasingly difficult, even more so as people come online and our society becomes more and more dependent on digital technologies. Hence, ensuring effective risk management policies should be in place to enhance digital literacy and digital safety and security, including training in basic cyber hygiene, should be considered for mediation staff. And this is the kind of training that we're providing within my organizations that I work with at the moment. So with this, I will now yield the floor to my colleagues and to you, Shereen. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks so much. I mean, you've you've made a very interesting point about both the pros and cons of using digital platforms for mediation, that while it does uh, provide some opportunities, that to based on what you said, you don't think it can ever replace face-to-face -face mediation and that it does come with a number of uh, serious threats and, and, and challenges. You've also pointed out that uh, social media analysis, um, the tools that are being used for social media analysis don't necessarily produce reliable um, uh, uh, insights that can be the foundation for decision-making or for sound uh, mediation, and that there, there is a need to revisit and rethink a lot of that analysis and, and perhaps make sure that you triangulate it through face-to-face um, -face and other forms of, of engagement. But on this point in particular, um, I, would, I would like to, Helena, because she, uh, you said you had a comment on, on the use of social media anal analysis tools. Um, I will give the floor back to Helena and then I've got a couple of questions that I'd like to pose to you before um, uh, we open uh, the floor to the, the audience. But at this point, I would like to invite questions from, from the audience. So please uh, do type in your questions and I will be posing them to, uh, to the panelists. Over to you, Helena. Um, I just wanted to add a, a small point on this particular issue of social media analysis and how it can be used um, uh, by mediation teams. Uh, and I'm sure this is something that Nandini has also thought through, but just wanted to highlight it, um, which is that, um, you know, Shireen, you said before, it's very reductive when someone gets interpreted according to what's in their, so in their Twitter feed. So another way to think about this is that social media isn't the same as voice in a political process. So tools like the one that that um, that Nandini highlighted that was uh, that was developed by Global Pulse are deeply extractive, right? So I go online to, to say something, not because I think this is going to be integrated into. This is not. I'm not going online because this is the opinion that I would want to share with mediators in a peace process, and yet. Uh, that piece of, of opinion is extracted by a tool and used as somehow representing my opinion to a peace process. Um, and I think there's something about that, that that we have to be really careful about because uh, to really have voice in a, pro in, in a peace process means that I have agency over the opinions that I want represented in that peace process. And tweeting something is not the same as that. Um, so I just, I think we have to, you know, this particular issue of social media analysis really requires some careful unpacking. It's not just that the data isn't reliable or actionable, it's that I'm not sure it represents actual voice. Thank you, Helena. And you've pointed out another puzzle because increasingly with the social media analysis that is being produced and including in some academic papers even, it is becoming um, uh, a source for data and a source for information to analyze public attitudes towards a number of issues or uh, the attitudes of particular political groups, um, why social movements um, start, how they start and how what kind of agendas they, they've got or priorities. So it, it, I, I completely agree with you. I think this is a point that would require a lot more attention and uh, many thanks to Nandini as well for pointing that out and, and reflecting on her, her own experiences as a mediator. But that brings me to um, a couple of questions that I would like to pose to the panelists as we get uh, questions from the audience. The first question to you is, um, 
I would like us to zoom in a little bit further on COVID-19 and its implications. There's a lot of literature and analysis that's been emerging, uh, talking about the implications of, of COVID-19 on local uh, peace building and on digital peace building. And again, opinions are really divided. Uh, there is the opinion that um, COVID-19 was an opportunity for digital peace building to expand, um, for people from opposed uh, political factions to come together online in, in meetings and for mediation online to flourish. And then there is the opposing opinion that basically states that it hasn't been useful um, and that you know COVID-19 has not had, um, has not necessarily increased uh, the, uh, the use of, of digital peace building, including for young people. So I, I pose the question to you, do you think, and based on your experience, has um, COVID-19 and the social distancing measures associated with it resulted in an increase, uh, increasing reliance on digital peace building, or has it decreased um, the reliance on it? Um, shall we start with Nandini, then Ibrahim, then back to Helena? Nandini, would you, would you like to go first? Sure, thank you. So I would, I would say that Actually, we're all seeing that the pandemic at the moment and the response to it depend on community networks of trust. Trust is also critical to the effectiveness of government responses to the pandemic. And this trust at the moment is under attack. Misinformation about the pandemic is rife and it's being used to exacerbate existing conflict divisions and also create new ones and draw more people into conflict, mostly young people who are also very easily influenced. So many peace builders like me and my team have recognized this threat and our global peace chain at the moment we're doubling down on our existing community and technology tools as a way to spread factual information and build a community response. So we've seen a short-term positive effect of the pandemic on peace. In times of crisis, we've seen people rise to their best and we've been inspired by the ingenious and human responses that we've been seeing across communities in the way they've connected. We've also seen reports of ceasefires in numerous countries and we're also hoping that there might be a reduction in foreign military in certain regions. But crises are also an excuse to exert control. And we have seen that in, in many countries at the moment where there has been an abuse of this pandemic situation to shift the power and to perpetrate violence. We're seeing signs of this already. And what worries me most is how this plays out in the medium and the long term. For instance, we've seen many peace builders who are now repurposing the existing initiatives because they need to respond to emerging challenges from the pandemic. For instance, the Myanmar ICT for Development Organizations, real owner Facebook Messenger chatbot, has been debunking conflict-related rumors and is now almost completely devoted to just ensuring that fake news about the virus is not spreading. So we have seen that there is a very fast adaptation to these programs mm. and some some peace builders are finding new energy in this crisis to create digital initiatives that will foster peace and resilience in the months to come 
Thank you. Um, and, I, and again, I think your point on the on trust in particular is is very well taken at the politics and governance program where we have got um, a research agenda developing on trust in, in the time of COVID and really trying to understand uh, the intersection between trust building and, and digital platforms as part of that. Um, over to you, Ibrahim, what, what are your thoughts on, on this question, on, on the implications of COVID-19 on digital peace building, particularly within the context of Yemen? Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I have two segments, one on mediation and the other on COVID-19 and societal resilience. Uh, to begin with societal resilience and the response to COVID-19, uh, the response of local authorities has been very disappointing in Yemen. Uh, the country has been, you know, waged with multiple wars. One is the conflict itself, and then COVID-19, and then, uh, you know, a list of pandemics. So we've seen uh, artists from across the world, like Yemeni artists, organizing uh, and mobilizing each other, and then developing couple songs to aware the society about COVID-19, how to increase societal resilience, about good practices. And these really resonated well with many people inside the country. And another important role was by the young people, men and women uh, from, you know, Korea to Turkey to... I think we've lost Ibrahim again. So we had okay. the social media influence on the social media to deliver some, you know, to deliver a message with a hashtag called our situation is different, given that we have a conflict and COVID-19 and that the digital space is giving us more, you know, opportunities to rely on internet. Uh, the second segment on mediation. So we've seen two components. The first is the office of the special envoy uh, organizing the first mass uh, consultations online with over 500 people. But again, like Nandini mentioned, face-to-face uh, -face discussions are different. And two months earlier, we had a ceasefire announcement that did not, uh, that did not hold, and that's quite, uh, that's quite expected. Uh, the the uh, Martin Griffiths had a couple meetings with the government, with the Houthis, with the STC, and uh, the joint forces in the West Coast. But anybody can talk nice to you virtually. And those who go to mediation rooms and negotiations understand that, you know, uh, it, it just takes more than virtual meetings. So it did not hold and words remained words and they failed to materialize. Uh, and, and yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ibrahim. Um, and I guess what we're what we're hearing so far is that it, it really is a double-edged weapon. It can be it can be used in in good ways in order to foster social cohesion and different forms of solidarity, but it's also been politicized. Helena, over to you. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you know I I would also take a step back and think about the fact that a lot of peace building was already becoming digital, right? So it's a little bit like, you know, people say, oh, will we now all work remotely forever? Um, well, a lot of us are already working remotely, right? And what's happened now is it's made a lot of workplaces that were previously unwilling to experiment with remote work um, to start doing it because they have to. Um, and so I think with peace building, it's very similar. Like a lot of peace building was becoming digital. And I don't mean to the exclusion of face-to-face -face meetings. I absolutely agree with Ibrahim and Nandini that 
face-to-face work is so important and critical, particularly in mediation, right? Uh, but a lot of mediators who were unwilling to engage with digital technologies now have to. Um, and they have to because it's filling a critical gap um, right now when it's very difficult to meet face-to-face. But I think they would have had to anyway. I think what social distancing has done is it's meant a lot more of our conversations are happening online and they're moving online. And that means two things. One is there's an opportunity, as you were saying. So yes, you know, people are online more, so we got to go meet them there, just, just like we meet people where they are anywhere. But also, I think a lot more people are becoming aware of this socio-technical context that I was talking about before. They're becoming aware of the fact that digital technology is actually affecting the very context in which mediation is taking place. And so it's not that they need to use digital technology to reach more people. It's that digital technology is integral to the conflict that they're walking into, right? That, that they're trying to mediate. Um, so for me, it's just made things, you know, it's sort of brought to the fore something that I think was coming to the fore already um, because social distancing has, has made it, you know, such a stark change into, into people being online a lot more. Thank you. You've responded to the next question that I had for you, which is no, it's fine. Which is about the whether or not uh, digital peace building has changed the uh, conflict resolution dynamics. Okay, especially for young people, has it has it really? Which is very much what you're talking about, Helena. That the world has changed. It's not a matter of uh, thinking of digital peace building as an add-on or the only uh, uh, platform or space for uh, for peace building, but that but actually the world itself has changed. We have all become a lot more digitally savvy, um, a lot more present within uh, the digital space, and that it just makes sense that digital peace building gains more importance and more salience, if you will, because of that. But I'd be I'd I'd be interested to to hear from Ibrahim if if you if you think that within the context of Yemen that digital peace building and the presence of young Yemenis on Twitter on Facebook on WhatsApp and and all of those platforms has really changed the conflict resolution dynamics and and whether you think a UN process and um, regional processes uh, for mediation and and conflict resolution are lagging behind. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think the types of engagement uh, deserve different levels of, of, of efforts. So when when the office of the special envoy did not, you know, assist that the the April engagement with, with, with the stakeholders virtually did not work, so they had to go and meet them in person, whether that is in Riyadh to meet the coalition and the government, or even depart to Sana'a to meet with the Houthis and, and relevant stakeholders. Uh, but it really goes back to why conflict happens. And, and a lot of these questions, you know, have less to do with the, digi- the, the, the digital space. Yes, they do have a lot to do with space, but, but you know, the digi- digital space would be a reflection or an extension of that thing. So there is a huge gap in, 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 ways, we, in, in ways we are managing it. And now in the Yemeni context, I think the first priority for, for uh, the mediators is, is to just get the joint declaration inked. And, and the joint declaration is far from having a resolution to the conflict. It is far from an unconditional peace talks and that has been lagging behind 
since the uh, the collapsing and, and and the failing Stockholm Agreement. So we are far from from an effective engagement. Uh, another anecdote. In fact, many of of, of young people or Yemeni experts who have, you know, have been warning of the Stockholm Agreement have been blamed for voicing out their concerns of the joint declaration, even from foreign ambassadors who, who I think should have been uh, very much understanding of, of uh, the legitimate concerns that this brings up. So, you know, thank you. Thanks, Ibrahim. Um, I think there's there is an agreement uh, that there's there's a need for a multi more multi pronged approach that we need to capitalize on digital spaces and, and what they offer, especially young people in terms of uh, especially young peace builders in terms of um, voicing uh, their opinions, identifying their priorities um, in terms of empowering uh, the marginalized, but that also um, that this comes at a particular cost and that there are certain challenges that we need to uh, take into consideration. Before I, I pass on to Nandini, I would like to remind uh, the audience that uh, we're collecting questions. I've already got a set of questions, but please do keep posting um, questions, which we would then post uh, to the panel. Nandini, um, do you have any other thoughts on, on this issue? Do you think um, based from on your experience that conflict resolution dynamics have changed indeed because of um, digital peace building? Actually, I have seen that digital technologies, social media in particular, provide unprecedented opportunities for ensuring greater inclusivity in a mediation process, provided, of course, that stakeholders have access to the internet. They significantly lower the financial costs and logistical burden of running traditional consultation processes. Importantly, they offer new opportunities for engaging and including the perspectives of different stakeholders, including women, youth, and traditionally excluded or hard-to-reach groups throughout the different phases of the mediation process. Digital technology is increasingly used now to support the development and implementation of our, I mean, mediators' public communication strategy. So it is crucial for us to understand the digital ecosystem of a given context for determining which media to use to convey messages to which audience. Since traditional media still plays an important role in many conflict contexts, a public communication strategy should ensure it combines both traditional and electronic media so as to ensure consistency of messages. It should also be informed by youth and inclusion expertise and systematic consultation with youth organizations and civil society. We strive to design our public communication strategies, taking into account the strategies used by conflict stakeholders while considering the overall context and different phases of the process. To illustrate this point, I would like to share with you my experience in the Democratic Republic of Congo. During the Democratic Republic of Congo political dialogue led by the African Union, the facilitator was overwhelmed by requests from Congolese media representatives for accreditation to the dialogue processes. His team accredited a significant number of journalists, but due to limited capacity and resources, many others, particularly those based outside of Kinshasa, could not be accredited. 
Instead, the communications team created a WhatsApp group to share communiques as well as other important information, including meeting programs and schedules. It became a platform on which members would instantly share documents, pictures, and comments about the process. So such tools can be used to sensitize youth on issues relating to the mediation process before the commencement of activities or talks, or to disseminate reassuring messages across communities. Similarly, they can be used to provide accurate information and counter spoilers through sensitive periods of a mediation process. Additionally, the use of visuals allows us to build stories about the process in a way that is understandable, understandable for you. And platforms such as WhatsApp have a limited uh, use a limited amount of mobile data. So it's also affordable for a lot of young people who don't have access to broadband or do not have digital devices such as laptops or tablets. And this promotes access to them, of course, such processes. Thank you, Nandini. And um, just from recognizing the limited time that we've got, um, I will now take questions from um, the audience. And the first question to the panel is, is as follows. What does each panelist see as the biggest barrier to digital peace building? And how can youth mobilize to overcome this? Are there any innovative ways? I think we've touched on some aspects of, um, of this question, but it, it's still, you know, it is a big one. Helena, do you, do you want to have a go at it first? Uh, it is, it's such a big one. Um, <laughs> um, what do I think is the biggest barrier to digital peace building for youth in particular? Um, I think probably the biggest barrier is um, the um, the the tendency to design um, solutions, platforms, um, tools um, that um, serve the people who are designing them as opposed to the people who are supposed to use them. Um, and the reason I raise this is, you know, we can talk about the barriers to access and, and, you know, people not having access to the internet and et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like that's something that we all know is a problem. And it just means in some places you can use digital peace building and in others you can't. But I think it's much more interesting is where you have a place where people are very engaged um, online and have access, um, but um, you're designing a tool that serves the mediation team, say, but doesn't actually serve uh, the users, the youth. And so after the initial excitement about the existence of this tool, uh, nobody engages anymore. Um, and I think that the way that youth peace builders can overcome that is to really um, think about human-centered design um, and uh, leading design from, from the bottom up. Thank you, Helena. It's a really important uh, issue to consider. Ibrahim, do you have any uh, comments to that question? Uh, I, I think the biggest barrier to digital peace building is matching it with uh, a presentation and deepening youth engagement on the table. And, and by this, I mean having a consultative body at, you know, UN-led peace processes, consultations, 
it's not only youth fighting on the ground or making up one third of, of, of Houthi fighters. I think it's about having more of those young people voicing out their aspirations. And I think the innovative way to do this is to start mobilizing young people, opening the conversation uh, between young people in diaspora and inside Yemen. And, and I think if, if they come up with a body, then they, they deserve to, to have their own hackathon to imagine the peace process, as I mentioned earlier, from negotiations to the, the shape of future state, to reconciliation, to conflict resolution, to, to addressing, you know, legitimate grievances early. And without having that, digital peace building will be just digital. Brilliant. Have youth at the table. That's great. Nandini, what is the biggest obstacle from your perspective? I would say that youth-led initiatives rarely go beyond the capital elites and do not foster intergenerational dialogue and collaboration. So in research frameworks, we really see the inclusion of youth in outcomes and results. And we don't see disaggregate indicators such as sex, age, location, or gender identity. So in developing peace building strategies and policies for and with the youth, we should ensure consistent attention to gender equality and young women's participation as well, because we often tend to overlook the fact that girls and young women are youth, just the same as boys and young men are. So we should ensure implementation of and complementarity with a gender responsive peace building. Thank you, Nandini. I think you all made very uh, critical points on what the key challenges are and how innovative approaches can be used to address them. The next question from the audience is as follows. Could any panelists speak to the role of the educational sector, formal or informal, in technology-based peace building? So who would like to take that question? Um, Helena, do you wanna, since you are an educator. I have a very specific answer to that, which is that um, I, I think one of the, um, of, of the places where youth are having uh, the greatest impact on, on, on uh, narratives around conflict uh, is social media platforms. Um, and we recently um, collaborated with six universities in Western Kenya uh, to run a program that essentially trained um, uh, students at these universities um, on different techniques for engaging in depolarizing conversations on social media. Mm. Um, I, I think there's a lot of potential for this kind of work. Um, it's just one example, but I think the role of educators in um, encouraging uh, youth to, to find different ways of communicating online um, on uh, social media platforms in particular uh, is huge. Um, there's, if you'll allow me one more comment, um, there's, um, you, I, you know, many people have probably watched The Social Dilemma, this recent uh, Netflix documentary um, on social media. And, and then there's a commentator, uh, Evan Greer, who I follow on, on Twitter, uh, and they said, you know, the, the, the problem with that documentary is that it treats social media as if it were cigarettes. So we should just tell people, get off it. And actually, social media is a lot more like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, um, which is, you know, it depends. And it depends on the how, on the what, and how much. 
Um, and I think if we think about that metaphor, um, that's how we, we also need to, to approach, you know, how educators should approach how young people engage on social media. It's not about a, a complete ban, it's about how you do it. Brilliant. Um, Ibrahim, Nandini, do you, did either of you want to address that question? Ibrahim, no? Do you want to address the question on education, the role of the education sector? Uh, if, if anything, I would point maybe the importance of, of as, as uh, uh, Helena pointed, the creation of narratives and the circulation of these and the collection of counter narratives as well to, to what the conflict is all about, the means of resolving it. And I think education is a key component here in, in terms of creating value-based materials that amplify long-term messages uh, because conflict is all about values. Some actors uh, believe in political in political violence as means. Others believe in in, in other objectives, in dialogue, and and, and these are the things uh, I think that should be amplified and uh, educated on to the to the public. And youth play definitely a central role in in in, in this. Thank you, Ibrahim. And now to the final question. Unfortunately, I don't have time to take any more questions from the audience, but. Hopefully in our forthcoming um, webinars, we'll be able to address a lot of those issues in depth. So the final question, which is also a big one, on being tech savvy, if young people are more technologically involved, how do the panelists see that affecting relations with other generations or groups who are not engaged online? How can we avoid elite capture? Nandini, do you wanna address that? <clears throat> So yes, uh, this question is really actually on point because I I, I just mentioned uh, a little earlier that there's a lot of youth-led initiatives that go beyond the capital elite, and so there is this really urgent need to foster international intergenerational dialogue and collaboration, and I feel like donors and inter international actors have a huge role to play in this because in developing strategies and policies they should avoid this conceptual trap that youth are either victims or perpetrators or only a risk factor and draw upon the increasing evidence that demonstrate that youth are largely peaceful agents and assets. Thank you. And also, you know, the other thing, and I would pass on to, to Brahim, is our definition of youth itself. I mean, it varies from country to country um, as a stage in the development of, of a person. You know, you can be in your 30s and, and still be, you still count as, as youth. Um, and a lot of the engagement that we're witnessing, especially in the Middle East, they're not people who would subscribe to the UN definition of, of, of youth. Um, Ibrahim, do you have any thoughts about engaging other generations or other groups uh, that are not necessarily the, the elite? How, how do you get them engaged online? I, I think the older generation is a little bit feeling the pressure to be engaged so that they're not uh, you know, being marginalized of, of the conversation. So you see a lot of uh, officials or even activists uh, who would, you know, get somebody to teach them how to engage and interact and, 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 and in that sort of manner, uh, because nobody wants to be, to be left out. But in speaking of, of elite capture, I think this raises one point, the importance of intergenerational dialogue, 
And oftentimes we as young people seek to demonize the older generation, regardless of, of, of what they do. And I think that is quite ironic and problematic because generational shifts requires intergenerational dialogue. And, and I think, you know, the digital space does provide a significant uh, platform to do that, whether privately or openly. Okay. We've got a final question. Um, one more question that I can, maybe Helena can address very quickly before we will have to close, um, which is about multilateral organizations embracing digital tech in peace building and whether they, they can do more. Helena? Um, I just got a message that my mic was unplugged. So can you hear yes. me? We can hear you, yes. Okay. Okay, sorry, I just popped up. Um, I think, um, uh, could they do more possibly? But I think uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of interest right now at a number of multilateral organizations in engaging with digital technology. So I'm thinking particularly um, of um, the UN um, uh, uh, DPPA, the Mediation Support Unit, mm. um, uh, recently put out this, um, this uh, digital toolkit uh, for mediators. Um, uh, there's an initiative uh, called the Cyber Mediation Network, um, which we're a part of, and a number of multilateral organizations are a part of, uh, that is exploring um, you know, how, um, how digital technologies could support mediation. Um, I also think that in uh, you know, most of the, um, of, uh, of the UN agencies that we interact with uh, have been engaging with digital technology for a number of years in, in, uh, for humanitarian work and are increasingly engaging with it in their peace building work as well. Um, so I do think that uh, digital technology uh, in, in peace building is, is being embraced by multilateral organizations. Um, I think the one thing that could be done more of is uh, to not silo it. Separately, so to not consider digital peace building um, as a separate area of work, um, but rather as part of the continuum of things that peace builders need to do, and also part of the continuum of the the, the context um, that peace builders need to consider. Brilliant, thank you, Helena. Um, Nandina Ibrahim, do you have any final words or final remarks before I close? No, Nandini, no. Okay, well, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion. I would like to thank all the panelists and the audience for uh, their, their insights and their, their questions. And I've, I've certainly learned a lot. And I think there's a developing agenda for further investigation and further research emerging out of this webinar that we would be keen to uh, follow up on both with the, uh, with the speakers, but also in our forthcoming webinars. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is part of a series of uh, conversations that we're holding um, at ODI. Um, the rest of the series will address issues related to what kind of capacities do young people need in order to be able to engage more strategically in digital peace building. We will also be bringing together security actors and peace actors on digital peace building and bringing um, divergent perspectives into conversation with one another. 
And then finally, we um, the, the last webinar will be looking at linking local realities to the global agenda on peace and, and questioning really what is missing? Um, why are we failing to make those linkages in strategic and sustainable ways? Um, and so uh, please, if you have any further, if there are any further questions, please feel free to um, get in touch with, uh, with myself or, or any members of, um, of, the, of the platform and of the, uh, any of the speakers. Um, and we will be in touch uh, soon with an announcement on uh, when the next webinars will be held. Again, I would like to thank um, uh, Helena, Nandini and Ibrahim for a most fascinating uh, discussion on both the pros and the cons of, um, of digital peace building for young people. And really what I take away from this is the need for a much more nuanced uh, perspective and understanding of both digital peace building as a, as a means and as a channel for a peace building for youth. Uh, but also as a space where actually things happen, where conflict dynamics are um, act, uh, are unfolding and where conflict resolution um, can be reimagined and, and rethought. So again, I would like to thank all of you and, um, uh, and, and please uh, stay tuned for more from ODI on, um, on this series of webinars. Thanks to all. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.